0: Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And today we are joined by gentleman Michael Start.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm Michael Verratti. I'm excited to be here.
2: And hi, I'm uh, Wes Ferguson, aka Lesterfer. I'm just equally excited to be here. Yay! Yay!
3: We're, we're both equally excited to have you both equally here.
0: <laughs> I have my vodka and iced tea. I'm doing great. We're all excited. We're going to discuss uh-huh. um, Beauty and the Beast and Homecoming. And Homecoming is the episode where the, our name comes from. So that's like a milestone in our podcast. Right, Matthew? I don't know if it's a milestone, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a reason for me here to, to be have, adversarial. It's a yeah. reason for me to have a drink, is what it is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> have a shot, Honestly. everyone. Take a shot.
1: I'm gunning be for. I'm the
0: for. episode.
2: Yeah,
3: exactly. I'm just <laughs> gunning for the best supporting actress on a podcast nom. So I need to play a character, an adversarial <laughs> character to Ian.
0: <laughs> Are you Cordelia and I'm Buffy? No. <laughs> Are you Faith? Am I Faith? Who's Faith? I don't know. <gasps> I always it's, Sunday, to be
1: safe. it's Sunday morning. Everyone's Mister Trick. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> uh, um, all right. So when we have people on for the first time, we like to ask them what their Buffy origin is. Um, either one of you can go first and tell us how you came to watching Buffy. Uh, <laughs> Wes, you can go I... first. How about that?
2: Uh, all right, I'll go first. Uh, well, I am actually ashamed to admit that um, I was a lover of the Buffy movie. I don't know if you kids remember that, but um, <laughs> I.
0: <Hello. laughs> Wait, how old the movie. are you, Wes?
2: <laughs> there are things we don't talk about.
0: Wes and I are vaguely, actually, actually, Matthew. For once, you are in the minority of being. The only younger-ish one. I think me and these Jesus. other two gentlemen are around the same age.
3: I am, And I have the Buffy movie on DVD, so we can all move past whether we know the <laughs> Buffy movie or not.
2: Yeah, well, I love the Buffy movie, and then when the TV series came out, I was like, no. Uh, because it didn't have, you know, the same lead, uh, it didn't look the same, and I was like, not into it. And it really wasn't until many seasons later I think the first episode I ever watched was the musical episode which really would set up strange expectations but (laughs) um yeah I got into it really late and then you know stuck with it until the very end and then of course I had to go back and watch it you know from the beginning multiple multiple times but yeah so that's kind of where my Fandom comes from, and and it was at first, you know, finding that difference between the the movie and, and the series, and realizing that actually the series was much better. <laughs>
1: yes, uh, I also saw the movie first. I guess I was just born right around the time that that would have happened. You know, in terms of growing up in the end of the eighties and early nineties. But my first experience with Buffy was when uh, the show began in the first season. Uh, being kind of vehemently against watching it, not because of any allegiance to the film, but before Buffy, there was really sort of this thing where when a movie was spun off into a television show, it was usually trash, Uh, and... There were a lot of movies that kind of, like, had that moment, like the Ferris Bueller's Day Off TV series starring Jennifer Aniston that no one remembers because it was bad, but, like, very short-lived Bill & Ted's Excellent Adventure TV series that wasn't very good. And so, like, when, ha- when that stuff happened, you, you just kind of had the expectation, okay, well, it's a mid-season replacement, which Buffy was. We're not going to even have this next year, so why get invested? And when uh, one afternoon, I remember I was flipping through the channels, and the very first episode I ever saw was uh invisible girl in season one because it was still during the first season okay. and i i liked it because it was very x Filesy, which i was into at the time um and so i was like okay maybe the show's cool but i didn't actually tune back in until the end of season two with becoming part one and two and then i was like holy shit this show's good and so i, I went back and and kind of caught up and i really really got into the groove of watching the show in season three so it's appropriate that I would uh, be here today for this.
0: Nice. <laughs> Matthew, well, and yeah, Matthew and you and I often applaud season three because we both—it's like our favorites. Yeah. Ian, do not speak for me because you keep getting it wrong. <laughs> <sighs> you are exhausting. You exhaust me, Matthew. And I season
3: love- three is uh, is objectively the best season. <laughs> And I do not have a special allegiance to it. I feel like I actually have a special allegiance to season four because it's so um, put put down upon or like people put it down all the time. And I am very protective of it.
1: Uh, I'm a Riley apologist, and I will. <gasps> gl- oh my gosh, another
3: Riley apologist what? on the podcast is the first. I will time.
1: gladly return to the show to explain why the history of television is always unkind to the nicer guy, and we are forced to like watch these great female characters make poor male decisions. Otherwise, I mean, I get why people don't like Riley because he's actually the boyfriend that makes sense instead of the one who like you know becomes a demon when they bang. So that's uh, whatever. Oh my
3: gosh, I'm so excited. We are going to have you on for special (laughs) Riley episodes. Book him for for, um, Into the Woods and book him for...
0: (laughs) You know what, you you can be the co-host for season season four, Michael. I know, (laughs) by Iowa and the IM team. Wes, I need you to back me up here. (laughs)
3: <laughs> we need to do, I'm going to collectively get us together, we need to go to season three and talk about these episodes before <laughs> we go on any more tangents. Uh, so let's start with Beauty and the Beasts, um, the episode that decides to uh, bring back Angel and use a domestic violence metaphor to uh, do yeah. it. I um, yeah, Go ahead.
0: I don't know... I actually thought this while watching the episode that I don't know that the um, they don't always do the metaphors so well when they're really heavy-handed, um, and I don't know if this metaphor works. But even in a throwaway episode like this, there is still so much going on. Like, there is still so much to like that we can talk about. Character-wise, I am like, you know, this like this is the first episode where like Fate's in the mix and she's just there and it's not right. a big deal. Yeah,
2: and even though there are kind of several like episodes that are like the monster of the week, and where you were saying maybe this is like kind of a throwaway episode, Yeah, um, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, you're right, Faith is here. I think this is the first time we see the principal, right? No. Was that next episode? No, it's not the first time we you're, see him? You're Wait, the you the mayor. Mean, you mean, that's
0: next episode. Oh, I'm sorry, the
2: mayor, the mayor, the mayor yeah. yeah. He's in homecoming. Yeah. Running. Uh, okay, so so there are some things they start to introduce here that, uh, at least in this, these couple episodes, that kind of stretch. Well, I mean,
3: right? one of the things that we spoke about recently uh, with the last few episodes is just to catch people up. So you had one and two, which were really more like sewing the, or like whatever it's called, you know, putting the bow on season two because right. she's in L.A. and then she comes back. And then a lot of ways uh, episode three kind of feels like the real season three beginning with um, Faith being introduced and Mr. Trick coming to town. And all these kind of... um, One of the things that's great about season three is that it actually is really good at keeping all of its threads going. And this episode is doing a lot of the work of keeping the threads going. So um, we meet the mayor in Homecoming and Mr. Trick comes back. And it's really only been like one episode in between where we haven't, where Mr. Trick hasn't factored in that much. Um, and that would be Beauty and the Beast. But Beauty and the Beast is doing a lot of work for the show's kind of like romance side in terms of, um, all of them, you know, in terms of Willow and Oz and in terms of Buffy and Angel. And then in terms of these two characters, what are their names? Debbie and Scott or Debbie and Pete?
1: Isn't it Ben? And I could be totally wrong.
3: No, it's, it's Debbie and Pete.
1: Oh, Debbie yeah. and Pete, yeah. I think yeah. categorically this is one of those episodes that when you go back and read sort of Buffy criticism and and what made the show a hallmark of a generation is uh, sort of put on display here where, you know, when Joss would talk about the show in, in ages past, he would talk about using the monsters as allegorical a- allegorical to represent something else. We've got this whole uh, relationship dynamic That kind of like puts misogyny on blast and talks about like, you know, victim mentality and abusive mentality. But it also, with that message being uh, played out with the story of Pete and Debbie, then you alternatively have this sort of problematic mirror where Buffy's helping Angel, even though she just last season went through sort of an abusive arc with him and I, you know, obviously the argument can be made that he wasn't himself but I, I think that that's kind of what makes this episode interesting is there's this parallel that we're literally witnessing with these two Sunnydale uh, residents mm-hmm. sort of what Buffy and Angel were and she's kind of like apologizing for Angel meanwhile he and Pete and Debbie's kind of like conclusion is a little more definitive
2: and she has the cute little boyfriend, because Pete and Debbie's friend, she she only meets them through that the guy she's dating. Yeah. Scott, Scott. Yeah. And here, even though later on, whatever, he turns out to be gay, in the moment we don't know that, and he seems like a perfectly sweet guy, but she's like, what about Angel? And he's like a total 90s babe. He really right.
3: is, yeah. Yeah. Well, he not yeah. only is he 90s babe, it's funny that Joss later made him gay, because he looks like he should be on Queer as Folk. Like, he looks like <laughs> a little 90s Queer as Folk boy. Hold on, wait.
0: I need to do... <laughs> I think he was on Queer as Folk. Oh, honey. I'm, like, pretty sure he was. Hold on, I'm gonna oh, talk amongst well, yourselves, well, we'll ta- and while I'm gonna you, figure while out. you look at that, so... From just... the
1: bronze to Babylon.
3: <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's that's going to be my thesis when I get my PhD <laughs> <laughs> in the bronze of Babylon clubbing and queer and cl- clubbing and alternative families. <laughs> Hold on. And yet,
1: um, Cordelia to me is the true queer icon of this season. And we'll talk about that later.
3: Well, yeah. Yeah. Oh he wasn't queer. So we say this to all of our guests. This is a Cordelia. This is a, a also a Cordelia Stan podcast because we talk about Cordelia a lot. And, um, we also, so we stand Cordelia and we're obviously anti-Xander because he's a men's rights activist.
1: I don't know if, uh, Ian told you this before I came on, but we had a conversation once, which I think was part of our, our bond, uh, when we first started talking via Twitter. Uh, I never, ever, ever was on board the Xander train. I never got it. Like, I didn't get why, like, fans were, like, obsessed with the character because my favorite Scooby is Anya and, um... I also love Cordelia, and throughout the arc of the show, he's terrible to both of the major relationships he has in a very, like, misogynistic way. He also yeah. kind of tries to dictate to Buffy what her relationships can be, and I'm like, this guy's not a friend, he's a dick. Just because He is a he, dick. Yeah, just because you mask it in nerdity and fun one-liners, that doesn't mean he's not an asshole.
3: Yeah, no, he is a complete asshole, no. and, he is, and that's why I always say if Buffy took place in 2017, there would be a whole season about her fighting this, like, men's rights activist demon colony online and Xander would fall in with them and that right. would be like the entire plot of season cuz he is one step he's one reddit form away from or one 4chan form away from being a men's rights activist. And well, there's no
2: saving grace for him cuz he's not even cute. So <laughs>
1: No, well, and well, I'm willing they're... to put this in the universe. <laughs> quote quote Michael Verratti Caleb could have gone farther. No,
0: I wouldn't so the only reason I wouldn't want that to happen is because Buffy and Willow would be too upset, and I don't want them to be upset, and I love them. I
1: like upset Willow. Shit gets done when Willow's upset. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The
0: world almost ends when she's upset.
3: But that, but she almost gets it done, is yeah. the point. Fair. <laughs> um, so let's get back to this episode. So... Really, the, the driving plot of the episode is that there's been a murder in, in Sunnydale, and people think that Oz is the culprit because he was let out of his cage because of Xander um, falling asleep on the watch. Sure. And Shitting
0: the bed as always. So <laughs>
3: they really think that it's Xander, and so they start investigating, and um, that's when Buffy sees Angel in the wild and decides to lock him up in his mansion in chains. Very s and I'm very into it. Um... And then uh, Buffy goes and starts to kind of research people coming back from hell dimensions in her local library. Yeah, as as you did. Yeah. Yeah, As Mark does. Yeah. What did you do with the library? And also, like, the most conspicuous place. She doesn't check the books out and do it at home. She literally falls asleep where, like, Giles can find her researching.
1: Well, I mean, also, it's kind of like the joke of the series is that, like, what school library has these books? Like, I, I went to high school in the Midwest, and if something was like too controversial, like the parents would be a little upset. Like, I don't know if we can have a wrinkle in time, but no, that demon, <laughs> demonology book. You know?
0: Yeah, growing up in Jersey, I think Catcher in the Rye was like tried to be ba- like moms tried to ban that book from my high school. Like, give me a break, yeah. <laughs> um, um, also. I so wanted we, to, I, like, it almost feels silly, like, why does she bother trying to say Faith had those books? Because, like, she she's Faith literally asleep read. with them, like, open in front of her. And, like, Giles is smart. He's going No, you know?
3: I, I, because we have to go through two episodes, I actually just kind of want to get to the central metaphor and some of the things that happened kind of in the denouement of the episode where um, you see Pete, Pete getting really mad with Debbie because and like Debbie is like trying to help, saying that she's trying to help him. And actually like the writing, it's very, I don't wanna say it's good or bad, but it's almost very like lifetime movie about domestic violence. Yes. Like it's very textbook, like it's like, Debbie's like, I'm trying to help you. And Pete, no matter what she says, is turning it against her and using it as like fodder to get even angrier. Um, and, I mean, the episode's called Beauty and the Beast, and I guess it's about, you know, the way that these three women, if you include Debbie, um, you have Willow really hoping that Oz did not do this violence, and Buffy hoping that Angel didn't do this violence, and Debbie covering for Pete, knowing that Pete's probably doing it. In fact, one of the things that I gloss over is Pete, if I'm correct, Pete killed the school psychologist. And I actually think that's one of the most like kind of eerie ways that the show has done a death scene.
0: It's where, oddly where
3: just, brutal, yeah. It is oddly brutal. Um, and Michael, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Michael and Wes, where he she goes to talk to him, and like his cigarette is out, and she's just right, to his and his body. face is yeah, like, yeah, yeah, worse. yeah. So she discovers him dead. Um, it's I it's
1: do not, not that, pay to work
3: at Sunnydale High School.
0: <laughs> <not>. Yeah, like, <laughs> no. why does anyone go
3: there? <laughs>
2: yeah, but so I mean, the last thing we're on your about, resume.
3: You're <laughs> talking about allegory before, so really, I feel like the, the the minor or the plot of Debbie and Pete is kind of really meant to underscore, you know, how much everyone on this show is dating a beast in one way or another, like. It, Buffy sees Angel and he's animalistic, Willow's dating Oz, and they're all, I mean, we have like probably the two strong, I mean, we have the two female characters of the show, the the two strong ones, the two main female characters are both dating these men who have like another side to them. But we also see the opposite of what happens like when you hate for that when you know your man is bad.
1: Well, I think, too, this episode, because I, I do think that character evolution is so important to the arc of the writing of this series. And even little things that are introduced in the early seasons do have some sort of payoff or comeuppance later, or just an emotional resonance. And later on in season six, when Buffy has this sort of very aggressive relationship with Spike, there are seeds of that and kind of this inability to yes, yes. let go of this this kind of damaging relationship, even if you seek it out in someone else, that are, are sown here. It's like it's not that it starts here, but this is where we start seeing the aftermath. Season one and two with Angel's behavior and you know, Oz is a wolf, Angel is Angelus. We we see the causation and this is the beginning of the after effect, and that after effect takes years to get past. And I think that's really kind of a, a, a credit to the writing of the show, is that it's not an easy thing that's overcome by credits of this episode. I think that uh, when you have these kind of relationships that are obviously abusive and damaging, it's years of, years of work and sometimes relapses and, and we, we see it time and again. And I think that's what's really uh, interesting about what happens here.
2: Well, I
3: think, though, the other part of it is that the show is a little... We've talked about this before and that the show can have a weird morality to it in that, like, it's a show about vampires and demons and and as our guest Joe Reed has said several times, in order to kind of keep all these groups at bay that were upset about the show, I think they get into some really weird territory that's actually super, like super heterosexist and, like, super um, intellectual idea of a a normal relationship. And, like, people stay in bad relationships on the show for a long time, and they don't let... And they don't just, like, let things die and move on or just, like, have casual sex or whatever. It's, like, everything has to be, like, a real-ass relationship. Like, even when she has sex with Parker once, she, like, goes into, like, ooh, we're probably going to be together now. And the show... And when that when that bond or when that, uh, assumption is challenged,
0: like, Buffy gets a whole episode to wrestle with that, so, like, well, we're, s- I, go ahead. I think, well, <laughs> um, sometimes people stay in really bad relationships for a really long time, and I can relate to that, so I feel like, <laughs> while the show does, like, do the, like, weird like morality, like you know, how in season four, like, oh look, drinking is bad. Like every time Buffy drinks, something terrible happens. Um, she doesn't just like wake up and throw up. Um but I I mean I said it before, I I don't think I think this episode has a lot going on and is still like a pretty good episode but the main thing, which is like the domestic violence, Jekyll and Hyde, whatever, like I I kind of think that whole thing falls flat. Like, I don't think any of it works. I think the introduction of a teacher who is a person of color who dies immediately on the show again um, doesn't work because we only get, like, he was really nice to Buffy, but he was, like, really nice to her two times. Um, And the death seems like it's really brutal, and it seems like it should have been a bigger deal. Um, I, I think, like, the main plot doesn't work, but I think everything else in the episode works.
2: Yeah, a lot of the character development, you know, is solid. And I think what's weird, too, is I feel like that main thread of the domestic abuse maybe didn't shine through quite as much because I felt like they tried to shoehorn in kind of like a roid rage aspect to it because he's right. So it was almost like, which one is it? Is it a commentary on the pressure that boys feel to perform and be cool and be you know be good at sports, or is he an asshole that's abusive, or is it? Are we excusing this behavior? Like, it wasn't. There was just a
0: lot. <laughs> there was a lot going yeah, on. It was like a mess of
3: metaphors. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and they also, I mean, it, it gets a little heavy hand. I just. It gets a little heavy-handed when, like, Buffy confronts Debbie in the bathroom, and Debbie has, like, a black eye. And that's kind of what I mean by Lifetime movie. Like, she yeah. kind of just like, are you going to let him do that? It, or it's, like, very, like, Jennifer Lopez and Enough. Like, there... Right. I just that is a also, good movie. <laughs> I love Enough. I will cape for that movie forever. But I feel like... It was, like, it, it wasn't done. If you're going to go all the way, you have to, like, make this, like, an anti-domestic violence message and it really wasn't like yeah. they kind of didn't know what to do with the plot or you need to not have like a throwaway plot about domestic violence in high school because it's a real issue and you can't just use it to service yeah. a larger story about angel and uh oz because uh, it's kind of feel like either it feels disrespectful to use domestic violence in that way the same way that we can say writers use like rape as a plot device i kind of feel maybe that's my issue is that i feel like domestic violence is being used as a plot device yeah. here
0: yeah. To, dis- to,
3: to discuss people's relationships with their animalistic boyfriends, as opposed to actually, like, having a plot. The way that Earshot actually does that yes. theme kind of episode well, I kind of feel like Beauty and the Beast doesn't do the domestic violence And Debbie well. gets
0: murdered. There's not even, like, a, oh, they save her from this, abuse her. She's murdered. Like, what's, what's the lesson there? Like. Well, and,
1: and then, too, it does go back to the fact that you can't have a strong moral standpoint on the Pete and Debbie storyline and then continue for weeks and weeks and weeks and seasons and years of kind of apologizing for other abusive characters. So it's, it's, I can see the problem there because on one hand it's like, we're going to take a stand, but also angels. Okay. (laughs) What the fuck? He isn't. He is not okay. Yeah. And I like that character, but it's just like, you can't like, if you're going to like, from a writer's standpoint, you kind of have to toe that line unless you address it, which they, they do, but they really don't. They never actually kind of like come out and be like, maybe Buffy needs to get her shit together and get away from him.
0: Yeah.
3: Well, isn't that, that's kind of like one of the, that's, one of the central issues of the show is like when is it okay that angel really tries to beat the shit out of buffy is it only okay because there's a demon inside him and then when he has a soul like you know the it's 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 different because now he has a soul and when is it okay that spike tries to rape her and then like he she like but she you know wants to spend her last few days on earth with him or whatever you know like and says that she loves him and then when is it okay that, you know, Oz is a straight up killer, but he only does it when he's in werewolf form and that's not his fault? So there's a lot of just like blurriness around, like, when is it okay to date someone who actively kills
1: people? Yeah, man, but, <laughs> but, but, but that Riley, though, right? But
3: Riley oh. does not. Riley's <laughs> right on the
2: good side. Lord! <laughs> and Riley, but is, Riley keeps secrets. Riley keeps secrets. We well, all and keep secrets. also, the, of course. But I feel like one of the. You know the things for not just Buffy, but other female series. Maybe they're not, you know, battling demons, but there's so often that male character that is wrong for them, and that's what the writers always kind of pit these strong female characters against, are yeah. char- like they always try to put them in these relationships that. For like, we can see that that's not gonna work, but they're so committed to it. I mean, I just feel
1: like that's oh my God, not please.
2: just a Buffy thing. Well, because so. it's
1: good TV. It's just what it is. Is it's like it, it creates a drama that like if they got to, I, you know, from the TV standpoint, if they got together with the nice guy and then that, that was that, it would just be like. And technically, it, you just have to find other ways to do it. But it's true. Yeah. Rory is not good. Wait. Jess is not good for Rory. Okay. Logan okay. is not good for Veronica yes, Mars. Yes, that's what but I was they're the most, <laughs> But they're the most compelling boyfriends for television.
0: <laughs> I was just about to start screaming about fucking Logan on Veronica Mars because Michael and I have DM'd about this. I fucking hate Logan and I don't ever want her to be with him. I think. and. Yet those fans and that show relentlessly shoves on you. This guy who literally in season one like filmed homeless people fighting each other for money. And I'm supposed to feel bad for him? Like, no, get him out of here. Um, yeah, and no. Piz was always the Riley, and I always wanted her to be with Piz. Um, and I think these shows do that, where like, you're right, Michael, it just makes for better TV. Like, I once wrote an article... And I mentioned Veronica Mars, and I called Logan a dickhead, and I had a Veronica Mars fan site tweet out about what a bad writer I was, and, like, how dare I say that, and, like, I wasn't a real fan, and all these people, like, tweeted at me to say how rude I was, and, like, disrespectful, and clearly didn't like the show, and I was like, no, I do, I just don't like Logan, like... So yeah, I feel like these toxic relationships just make for better TV, I guess.
2: Well, it creates drama. It creates drama. I mean, the other thing is it's a good relationship, but you're keeping a secret from them. That's another big kind of you know, which a lot of relationships aren't like that because they find out all your secrets. But Um, uh, on TV, you have to keep those secrets. So, which is another theme that they have in Buffy a lot is everyone has a secret. You've got it. You can only tell certain people one thing. Right. I mean, that was the whole Jenny Calendar serious,
3: you know, that was a whole Jenny Calendar arc was that they were having this really great relationship, but she didn't tell Giles that, oh, she was part of the Romani people and that she had a <laughs> thing out on Angel, like, you know? Yeah. Um, so let's move on to Homecoming, only because I don't want us to go too long, and because one of the things that Ian and I always say, as we talk about relationships, um, Ian and I on this podcast always say that um, the... The male-female romantic relationships or female-female. The romantic relationships on Buffy are not even really like the best relationships. The the meat and potatoes of it is just seeing like how this, this kind of like core family interacts with each other, which is often through dating. But um yeah. <laughs> Homecoming has a lot of really interesting stuff to talk through about like them as a as a unit and how they function. And there's a lot of just great moments with Buffy and Cordelia.
1: Um, I, I love Cordelia. Like I, As I said at the beginning, and I don't know if that's the, the way you want to access this episode, but <laughs> the one thing I, I, I think is important about what you're saying about the relationships. Relationships are what make Buffy the Vampire Slayer such a significant piece of TV history, because it, it, outside of the allegory, outside of the held mouth, all sort of those things, the character evolution that was created in that show was really unseen on television. And I think of all the characters, every character has an art that evolves, but none more so than, I think, uh, with maybe the exception of Wesley, uh, Cordelia has one of the best evolutions of, the, of character over both Angel and Buffy. I just put my hands
0: and in the air, because I agree, yes.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah that is, great. is true.
3: Well, you know what's funny is I, I have not really seen that much of Angel, but I still love Cordelia, but I do know people who are like, I shouldn't have to watch two separate series to, like, get an, a character arc of one character. And there's a lot of people who have said that to me when I cape for Cordelia. But I actually think that Cordelia is interesting enough on Buffy, too, to, like, love her for, for a Absolutely. three-season character. That there's enough there to parse through, and Ian and I parse through it plenty on every episode. <laughs> um, that to, you don't have to know that she becomes this, like, very powerful something-or-other on Angel. Once again, I've not seen Angel. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I just know that she has visions. I don't know anything that comes after that. Um, <laughs> That's a lot. So, yeah. so, um, so for this episode, I guess. Um, well, let's just to set it up. Scott kind of breaks up with Buffy. She's distracted because she's distracted, and um, then we see Mr. Trick kind of setting up Slayer Fest ninety eight, and um, I forget what it is exactly that Buffy that triggers Buffy to. Enter the homecoming fray. It's. I know it's a. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: It is. Cordelia is too busy campaigning to remind her that yearbook photos are being taken. And Cordelia kind of like brushes her off when she says, Cordelia, can you think of someone else but yourself? And then she wants to beat Cordelia. And they have so many good scenes of like doing that. Actually, maybe just two, but I love them. Um, (laughs) Yes. And like, it's weird this episode. I almost feel like the whole idea of Slayer Fest and Mr. Trick is oddly like, I don't know, like it still feels like relevant right now. I don't know, like that feels like something a vaguely super, like the show Supernatural like could do right now, where it's like, oh, these demons set up like a weird, almost reality show type thing where like they're all hunting these good guys. Like that feels like a plot that would work.
1: Well, what's interesting about this episode uh, from a, a horror film history standpoint is uh, J- Joss and the whole writing team were always really good at kind of being referential without, you know, directly ripping off. But this episode is uh, a direct reference to a old horror story called The Most Dangerous Game, which is about rich men who kind of acquire uh, people of lesser income or homeless people and set them loose on an island and hunt them. And then it's been translated into different uh films uh, over history, including uh, a movie in the 40s called the Most dangerous game and surviving the game like a couple decades ago. Uh, but this this whole setup is is kind of an homage to that story. Um, and the reason I think it still works is there's sort of like this devaluation of one person uh, over another. And um, I think especially in Trump's America, the way you know there's an elitism versus a, a not so elitism, if you will, um, that's why I think this always will be a relevant story.
0: Well, so I mean, I just, so Mr. Trick ahead. started this because of economic anxiety, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I think, so the, I also get the most
3: dangerous game from it. Um, uh, and one of the things that I thought was interesting about that was, oh fuck, I forgot what I was going to say. I lost it. <laughs> okay. Go ahead without me and I'll come back.
2: Oh, no. Well, I was going to say that Slayer Fest is... Uh, there's two Slayers that they're going after, Faith and Buffy. And I feel like we didn't get to talk about Faith enough because she is <laughs> one of my all-time favorites. I love a bad girl, and Faith just pushes all my buttons.
1: So, Well, I think the <laughs> uh, thing that no one ever says about Faith, too, and I think that's like... she's She's an amazing character. But after the season one finale... Even though the show's about Buffy, we're now living in Faith's Slayer timeline forever. That's like she's the she's the actual Slayer, and so we don't give her enough credit for being like this sort of like mega important character to the to this this whole series.
0: Listen, someone on Twitter literally tweeted at me the other day saying something like, "Oh, like I forget, oh." party down and then he was tweeting at slayer fest being like oh i just listened to this episode blah, blah. i can't wait to get to faith because i still want to have sex with her and she like sexually confuses me and i was like listen i know that i want a bottom for faith like she's hot <laughs> she's awesome <laughs> like teenage ian wanted to be her and like old man ian is like oh yeah totally sure why not <laughs> matthew did you remember what you were gonna say <laughs>
3: No, I didn't. But um, uh, really qu- Uh, okay, yeah. Let's just move on because I I'll, often I'll think about how eventually. this
0: episode would have played out with it being Buffy and F- I mean Buffy and Faith just would have like kicked all of their asses. I feel like, like right. Um.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, but I, I love. So, I mean, I love that Cordelia is the one that gets caught up in the action and and stuff like that. I mean, I think that this episode bringing out the Buffy-Cordelia rivalry slash friendship. It's such a, like...
0: It's so good.
3: Buffy and Cordelia don't get enough to do together. Um, Ever since, I mean, the most they really interacted was season one where they kept, where really Cordelia was a gatekeeper to popularity and Buffy was, like, on the edge of popularity because she was pretty and she was used to being the popular girl. And then she had the other side being Buffy, I mean, being Xander and Willow and her duties as a slayer Um, So actually, I actually feel like the Buffy and Cordelia relationship has not been as well explored until this episode. And I actually like that there's a deep, there's a really deep psychological almost form of resentment in the way that like Buffy was obviously called to do this thing that she didn't really want to do, i.e. slaying. And it's what she's known for. But I actually feel like she's frustrated because she knows that if she were part of Cordelia's world, that she could be a major player in that world too, and that that's what she's good at. So it's kind of like, I have this skill set that's not being put to use, and it's this social skill set that Cordelia excels at, but I have this other skill set that no one else can do, but I also can't tell anyone, and I get no recognition for it. So really, this episode is exploring, I think, the way that Buffy kind of wants recognition in a way that she never gets it for like literally saving everyone's life every day. (laughs)
1: Well, and what was funny is earlier at the top of this conversation, you referenced the movie, the Christy Swanson film. And, you know, a version of the story of the movie does, a a modified version of it exists in the TV show timeline because it has to. Like the the show takes place after the events in the film. And I think Homecoming specifically is one of the episodes that closely, most closely connects back to the original concept of the film, (laughs) that she she was this popular girl and that she had this whole kind of like social stratosphere and that was taken from her. And we see Buffy in this episode kind of being like, I miss that, I miss who I was. Like, I could be homecoming queen. And I think that like when we're introduced to Cordelia in season one, Cordelia is sort of the vision of Buffy as she, it's like she's the ghost of Christmas past and Buffy's the ghost of Christmas present. Like, this is who you were, but this is who you are. And uh, it's interesting. I, I love it because it's sort of like you can't hold on to the past and, and to see Buffy like so desperately want this homecoming crown is, it it speaks a lot to the character and I think it's a cool moment.
2: It is, and it's great to see, you know, Cordelia, I feel like she's always, no matter how, I don't know if she did this intentionally when she played the role or whatever, but Cordelia is very self-aware. Even from the very beginning, you know, she doesn't, She gets her role, and I think that's why she's likable, and that's why, as her character evolves, you really enjoy her because she just she's very self aware. She knows who she is and what role she's playing in this high school environment.
0: Oh my god, that's exactly what Matthew literally. Matthew always says that's what. Right? I'm not going to. Well, yeah, and and I'm not only that she's
2: self aware. I actually think that the
3: rest of the group is focused on slaying demons, and Cordelia is focused on the high school experience. And so she's kind of, like reminding everyone in the group that like what they're doing is also going to have social consequences. And she's the one who kind of like knows the most, she may know the least about the demon world, but she knows the most about the human world. And
0: she's like the playlist. And that's
3: also why it's interesting for Xander to go from Cordelia to Anya because he goes from someone who's like the queen of the social human world to knowing nothing about the human world, who also knows the most about the demon world. Um... So it's a very interesting, like, evolution in his choice of partner.
0: Also, a thing we should mention. Oh, wait. Keep going. No.
3: One of my favorite scenes in this uh, whole episode is when Buffy decides to run for homecoming and she asks all of her friends to help her and they're already helping Cordelia. Yes. And um, she asks Willow to make a database and she asks all these people to help and then... Which um,
0: reinforces what you both just said, like... Cordelia knows what she's doing. She knows how to work high school. And Buffy's, (laughs) like, already... Buffy has this giant board with these silly things on it. And I love when she's like, if I had a melon as big as Cordelia's, and, like, no one laughs, they're all just kind of like, eh. And because they're already helping Cordelia, because she's one step ahead of her, because Cordelia knows how to do this sort of thing.
3: Well, it's an interesting dynamic, too, because a lot of people will always say, like, oh, Cordelia makes no sense in the group, and blah, blah, blah. But, like... Look at how much they're all helping Cordelia because, and Ian and I have said this many times, Cordelia does not need to be out there slaying demons and helping everyone, but she does. And mm-hmm. she chooses over and over again to be a good girl, like to be a good person and to do good for others, even though she like she has a reputation for being a spoiled brat. Like she chooses again and again, instead of hanging out with Harmony, to hang out with that group and like help kill demons. So it would make sense that the group would help her in return to like just yeah. be homecoming queen.
2: Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She earns her spot in the in the Scooby Gang for sure.
0: Um also a thing we should mention is Willow and Xander have their first kiss in this episode.
1: Whatever.
0: <laughs> oh my <laughs> Well at least let's talk about that moment. Yeah.
1: I mean I agree with you, Michael.
0: I'm very like fart noise about it, but it's still a, I guess, important moment. I often wonder, so I think about like, you know, in Beauty and the Beast, Xander makes like a weird gay reference when he's like, oh, I can handle full Monty Oz. I don't mean flesh on flesh, like he's like no homo about it. And then in this, we get like them kissing and I'm like, was Joss still thinking about which one to make gay when he made them both kiss? Like, cause especially watching it now, there's like, it's very, it feels like, why are we doing this?
3: Right. I think that the, I think that the, the you know, the Willow-Xander flirtation kind of coming to a head here with the kiss, you know, I don't, looking back on it, I don't love that Willow and Xander got together. It was a little bit too incestuous yeah. for, the, for, for a small cast to, like, put them all in a love web together. But I see why it had to be done or, like, why the writing room kind of decided to go that route. Um, but, yeah, I'm just never a fan of seeing them kiss. Like, nothing about them does it for me. Nothing about them seems right. Like, I, and I, and, you know, I've both said this. I wish they didn't choose which one was gay and that they just made them both gay because they're both extremely gay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Xander's, like, toxic, just everything toxic would have made a lot more sense if it was, like, oh, he'd been closeted this whole time and, like, Struggling with whatever. Not oh, that it would have been okay, so but it would have like an asshole.
3: Yeah, like right? And then Come and on. then he and Larry get together and we get some Larry on Xander action.
1: Oh my god, Larry. <laughs>
3: Larry I'm a Larry Stan. <laughs> <laughs> he was that hot high school bear that we're gonna, Xander we're gonna have him on
0: the podcast one day, Matthew.
3: <laughs> we should we totally should. Um, okay, so when Cordelia gets in the limo instead of Faith, and they get attacked. Um, And she's already
0: fucking annoyed. (laughs) Yeah. She's already
3: annoyed, but she looks amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. Right.
3: She looks flawless. Um, I, you know, aside from all the action and everything that happens, I really do stand for that monologue that she gives at the end, where she's able to get herself out of being killed by telling someone how badly she's going to kill them. That is iconic. That monologue
0: is a- <laughs> So, I wanted to say something about... So, my my mother's the one. Matthew knows this already. My mother's the one that got me into Buffy. My mom loves Buffy. And my mom is a very insane Latino mother. And my mother would always insist that Charisma Carpenter had to be Latino. She'd be like, oh, <laughs> she has uh... to be. And I'd be like, mom... Because my mom gets like that when she like really likes like, a female character, she'll be like, oh, they're, they're probably, like... And so my mom, like, I remember, like, her saying, citing that episode specifically, being like, that's how I would handle vampires if I was fighting with Buffy. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, telling them off, and you know, it working. But no, I think for me, that's, like, probably one of my favorite Cordelia moments on Buffy. Um, is that. Because it... It works so well. Um, yeah, and especially after, like, her, you know, picking up the spatula and, like, kind of being, like, fairly useless in helping Buffy the whole episode, she's the one that ends up, like, saving the day at the end. So I love that. Well, you know,
3: every episode, I mean, every character kind of has, like, an episode that's about them. Like, you know, there's the Zeppo and blah, blah, yeah. blah. I don't think people realize that this is a Cordelia episode. Like, um, this is, I mean there's so many things going on, but it really is about her because one of the interesting things is that she actually confesses to Buffy that she loves Xander and that she's never told him.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um,
3: she says that to him as they're being chased or when she thinks she's going to die. She's like, I'm never going to tell Xander that I love him. But at the same time, we also know dramatic irony, wink, 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 that like Xander and Willow have kissed. So we, the audience kind of see attention brewing and that like Cordelia has finally admitted And it has, you know, and I think in Joss's world, or from what I would call like the heterosexist point of view, like, you know, saying I love you is like the ultimate, so like the ultimate thing of humanity, right? Like, so Scordelia has her defenses down, she thinks she's going to die, and she says like the most human thing in that like, I love Xander, um, and she doesn't get to say it to him at that point. But then we also see Xander being trash and like taking her love and throwing it away with Willow.
1: She literally gets impaled for Xander later in the season. She does. the episode, yes. no,
3: episode where she finds out that he's uh, cheating on her. Yeah. You yeah, know who moment. deserves
1: each other is... I mean... It, uh, I hate Xander so much. Uh, <laughs> you know who deserves each other are Anya and Cordelia. They should just run off with each other and... Then, like, uh, the range—that's. I, mean,
0: I would love that show. Like, what if Xander?
1: What oh, if Xander
3: left? The, what if Xander died in graduation day, and the Scoobies became um, Willow and Tara and Cordelia and Anya, and they were
0: dating? Oh my god!
1: And it
3: was just five women, two two in lesbian relationships.
1: <laughs> this is the show I've always waited for.
3: <laughs> yes, that is honestly what was necessary. It's just a group of five women who don't deal with men's shit and and kill kill monsters. You don't
1: fuck with a lesbian vengeance
3: demon. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) For real. And Anya still does scorn women, but she does scorn queer women only. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. That's literally, that. like, the show already has, like, a big queer following. It would have, like, the biggest queer following. (laughs) 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 And, like, fine, Buffy can still, like, hook up with Spike, whatever, but, like... (laughs) Um, All right. So what do we think Dawn was doing during these two episodes?
1: Wait, is this an unusual question for you?
3: Yes. So this is a segment on our show we call What Would Dawn Do? Yeah. And it's basically the premise is obviously Dawn was inserted into everyone on the show's memories. So they have a memory of her being around during this time, but we don't. So what do you think Dawn was doing during uh beauty and the beasts and homecoming oh god
1: <laughs> i'm only crying about something <laughs> I mean, i'm assuming that like if we're we're going to just go with the fact that they have memories of dawn growing up this would place dawn at like 11 12, She's 12, 12 yeah. yeah at this point so she's like a little kid, like she's probably hanging out watching Scooby Doo with Joyce, or like having like a slumber party <laughs> or something. She's she was probably there being obnoxious while Buffy was getting ready for homecoming. She's like, well, when I, when I go, I'm going to wear this, this, and this, and Buffy doesn't care. And then she goes and you know watches Teletubbies, and that end, end of story. <laughs> you don't
0: watch Teletubbies at twelve, do you? You've seen Dawn, right? <laughs> fair, okay, fair. Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess
0: in, in these two episodes. Do we even get Joyce at all?
3: No, that's why. There's a lot less for Dawn to do in these episodes because it's they're not really ones that happen at home.
0: Yeah, that's true.
3: I... Um, so we talked a little bit last episode about Mr. Trick, and I do want to bring him up again because he is going to be a recurring villain in this, in this season. What do you think? I mean, we didn't talk as much about the actual game of Slayer Fest 90, and I do want to devote a little bit of time, just a few minutes to talking about, like, Mr. Trick organizing all of these demons to come to Sunnydale to hunt Buffy and Faith. Like, it's weird because he's not, he has usually a bigger picture of things than just, like, hunting the Slayer. But, I mean, that's that seems pretty major. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Seems I also want to know why you guys chose that as your name, if I have missed that in a, in a previous...
0: You haven't. You haven't. I don't think we've
2: discussed it. Maybe maybe this is the time to do it. It
3: is. Thank
0: thank you, Wes. That's a perfect question
3: (laughs) to ask. um, I guess the the real answer is that we were um, originally supposed to be a podcast with more than two people. And the original name was Three Slayers No Waiting based off of um, what Buffy and Kendra say when they're fighting together in season two. There's two Slayers No Waiting. And then just because one of the, the person who was supposed to co-host with us had a lot going on and couldn't do it anymore, we had to um, switch, and we had to switch really quickly because we were going to launch soon. So we... Um, I guess we just chose Slayer Fest 98 because it sounded... I don't know. It was also like a weird reclamation of Slayer Fest. Like Slayer Fest was supposed to be about killing slayers, but we kind of did it because it sounds like we're actually celebrating them.
0: And because... Yeah fun fact i'm fucking terrible at titles literally it was like well we have to change the name and i was like i can't think of anything matthew and matthew just like shot out a few title ideas and Slayerfest 98 was the one we kind of both liked the best but i'm terrible at titles so
1: i think you both missed the boat by not calling this double meat podcast
0: Absolutely I, not. Wait. <laughs> I i had suggested that didn't i <laughs> You suggested something with Double Meat Palace. I don't remember what it was, but I... Oh, you know,
3: actually, Michael, I know exactly what I suggested. It was Trouble Meat Podcast. <laughs> 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 um, But yeah, Ian said that, A, that was too niche or something, and that, like, he didn't want his podcast named after Double Meat Palace.
0: Because I don't like that episode, so I didn't want it to be, like... And I really... For me, I love Homecoming, like... You will see when you see the podcast art. I've been working hard on making something great for it. Um, because I'm a fucking nerd. Um, but yeah, I didn't want it to be like tied to that. Yeah. Because that's a caca episode. All right,
3: so what do we grade these two episodes, um, A through F, for um, Beauty and the Beast and Homecoming? Um West, you want to
0: go with this first? Yeah, Wes.
2: Oh gosh, um, I you know what I think you know we were talking about season three. Really, like I don't know. I, I, I like I said, I had always seen the later episodes, and so for me, like seeing the first few uh, seasons over and over, like I just I love these seasons. I love Buffy, so I definitely the the Beauty and the Beast. Ooh. It you know, didn't hit all the right notes for me, but I love Homecoming a lot, so I would kind of give them together like a B. They were, they were pretty good. There's a lot, lot what going do you on that I really frame like.
0: them separately, so. though?
2: Um, I mean, I like them both, so I'd have to give them both a B. You know, they're both fun, they're both fluffy, they both introduce a lot of things, you know, Faith is in both of them, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff going on. You know what, uh, the ending to Homecoming too is great, we, we didn't oh, touch yeah. on that, where they actually, they have this huge competition, they beat all these fucking vampire hunters up, and they finally get back to their, their homecoming, and they call out that it's a tie for the homecoming queen, and they fucking call out two other names. And Buffy and Cordelia just turn around it's and so walk away. It's right? so good. <laughs> that is great. Maybe I have to give Homecoming an A. So maybe a B <laughs> for Beauty and the Beast and an A for Homecoming, just for that that scene alone, that, that I think, ending. Fantastic. I think that's like
0: such a good, perfect Buffy end to it, where it's like, oh. It's like- so great. It is so great. I mean, they have just gone through such hell and the image of the two of them in their like very pretty dresses but like yes. beat to shit just like yeah so annoyed <laughs> it's
2: great it's great it's a perfect ending
0: michael what would you rate the two episodes uh
1: i'm i would say beauty and the beat for me a uh, beat beauty and the beat hey babes Yeah, um, justin bieber
0: that's my favorite uh, justin bieber song justin by the bieber
1: way promo uh <laughs> beauty and the beast uh i would definitely give a kind of middle c because i think based on what we discussed earlier there are strong themes that are not carried through the whole way there are several narratives that kind of conflict with each other and for just sheer problematic reasons uh i i couldn't say it's a standout but it's not bad it's it's definitely just an average buffy episode for me despite the return of angel um and Homecoming is an A for sure, because it, it advances the plot, it advances Buffy's kind of grappling with her, her role of being chosen, and it gives us pathos for Cordelia. Uh, it's just and it's a fun episode. It hits it hits all it, all the marks. Um but together, I think they work, like the, the kind of one-two punch. Yeah. Especially Buffy, you know, you watch Buffy and Beauty and the Beast kind of like dealing with the aftermath of this abusive relationship and then wanting the very real, uh, just kind of simple pleasure of like, I want to be liked by my fellow students of, of the next episode. So
2: Yeah, Buffy really wants the, the high school experience and, and, you know, not even getting her picture in the fucking yearbook and... You know, not getting any... Like, she really needs that, like, high school uh, experience here. And I think you really see that from her, which is a really fun part of this episode, so...
3: Well, I think that that will lead into my grade because I think that one of the things that this show does really well is, like, okay, she's dealing with, like, things that end the world. Like, she's dealing with demons that will literally kill people and end humanity. But, like, we also feel really bad for her when her photo is not in the yearbook because that means that she won't be remembered by her peers and that is you know on the level of like the world a very minor inconvenience but to Buffy it's huge and the, sh- that the show does that so well of being able to balance you caring about the fate of humanity and also Buffy's high school experience <laughs> so <laughs> well, I will give
0: relatable yeah I
3: will give great. homecoming an A for that and then I'll give Beauty and the Beasts a C+.
0: Okay, so I think I would give. Um, uh, I don't know. I think I would give Beauty and the Beast. Uh, everything else works but the main plot of that episode, and I love season three so much. I think I would give it, like, a B minus, and I would give Homecoming an A. An A. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I would go. Uh, so thank you guys for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You can follow our podcast on Twitter at SlayerFestX98, and you can follow me on Twitter at IanXCarlos, and gentlemen.
3: You can follow me at Matthew Rodriguez, Matthew with one T, and Rodriguez with a G and a Z.
2: (laughs) And I'm at Westifer, W-E-S-T-O-P-H-E-R.
1: And I'm at Michael Verati that's V is in picture, A-R-R-A-T-I.
0: Yay. Yay. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us. How fun. That was great. Um, it was a lot of fun. And, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.